This is John Stepling. This is Aesthetic Resistance Podcast number 100. Uh, and we have uh, an amazingly um, full group today, as they used to say in television tonight, a very special episode of Joni Loves Chachi. Uh, in Delhi, Varun Mather. Hi, Varun. Hello. Uh, in Japan for one more day, I believe, Johan Edibo. Hi, Johan. Good evening. Dennis Riches, also in Japan. Hi, Dennis. Hi, good evening. Uh, Corey Morningstar in Toronto. Good Hi, morning. Corey. Good morning. Um, somebody referred to you on Twitter as the legend, Corey Morningstar. You're now officially a legend. Uh, in Long Island, Hiroyuki Hamada. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi. Uh, and I'm very pleased uh, joining us, Max Perry from New York. Hi, Max. Good morning. Yeah. And in Los Angeles, Lex Stepling. Uh, hi, Lex. Hey, hey, good morning. Uh, those keen listeners will have noted the remarkable coincidence that Lex has the same last name that I have. Uncanny, uncanny that coincidence. Uh, no, Lex is my son, my eldest son, full disclosure, um, as Charlie Chan used to say, number one son. So uh, there's a lot of stuff, an amazing amount of stuff to talk about. And I think, uh, we will begin. I mean, I, I want to mention a couple things regarding um, Israel, Gaza. Um, and then we have the Navalny death that was last week. But Israel, Gaza, a couple of things. Uh, there was um, Aaron Bushnell's self-immolation yesterday, I think it was, day before yesterday. Um, and I actually did a spot on press TV talking about that, uh, echoes of the Buddhist monk in 1963 in Saigon, a Quaker. Um, there's rather um, a full history of protest by self-immolation. Uh, th this kind of act always, always manages to trigger a shift in perspective. Whether it does this time, I'm not sure. Um, because Ben Gavir, Minister of Defense, and Jonathan Pollard, the spy who did 30 years in a US prison before being released back to Israel, um, were both talking about the necessity for shooting women and children in Gaza. Ben Gavir said Israeli soldiers must shoot women and children to prevent another act by Hamas, et cetera, et cetera. This is extraordinary language for an elected official to use. I've never heard anything like this in uttered in public without um, without any kind of code or or uh, 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 sort of obfuscation. I mean, they're simply saying we are committing genocide. That's what we intend to do. And Netanyahu, of course, also said, it doesn't matter what the United Nations, what the ICJ, what anybody says, we are going to continue to prosecute this aggression against um, Palestinians. So uh, 
there's not a word of this, of course, in the Western media, New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing in European papers that I can find. Um, you have to go to publications in the Middle East. So there's that. There's also the fact that there's something like a thousand or more trucks full of food, relief supplies, waiting to enter Gaza, but they're being blocked by settlers who are having a party. They erected a children's bouncy castle that has popcorn and balloons, and um, they're having a party to ensure that Palestinians starve to death. Uh, this is also extraordinary. One wonders, I wonder why it is, why it is the truck drivers don't just run them over given that there's children starving. There are already infants in hospitals, the remaining hospital in Gaza who have died from malnutrition because of, because of starvation, essentially. This is already happening. And yet nobody really does anything. It's remarkable. Okay, so I'm opening this up to people. We have a lot of people, so I'm gonna be trying to see people's hands and call you in order, but um, anybody who wants to comment, go ahead, please. Um, I'll just start by saying that it's just like another level of um, depravity. I mean, I, I wonder how we come back from this, you know, as a collective global society, like how, how we heal from this, how we continue. I think if you are if you have any empathy of any kind, I think this is scarring. I think it's traumatic. I think it's depressing. I worry about the the damp. I mean, not just, I mean, obviously it's horrific what we're seeing, but I think there's, um, you know, this just furthers the mental um, downfall, you know? I, like, I'm so upset, actually. I, I can't even articulate how I feel. I am. Yeah. Um, you know, trauma. Every day is another day of trauma. Actually, yeah. I, 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 um, I, uh, I, I think a lot of people feel a kind of revulsion and and fatigue. It's hard to keep looking at at pictures of dead children. Lex. Yeah, I obviously share the revulsion and sadness and. You know, on every front, this has all just been so, like you said, upsetting. One thing that I I think is important to clock and talk about is because a couple things happening at once, certainly here in the States and certainly here in Los Angeles and in California, which is often the incubator for all things that come out of the, you know, the neoliberal project, um, is the response from kind of the the pro-Zionist voices, especially here in the States, to the self-immolation, to the sacrifice um, that this man made, has been to just talk about him having poor mental health. And this was yeah. simply this was simply evidence of his poor mental health. This person was mentally ill. And and obviously that's many things, including deflection, including shame. No one's ever not ashamed. And when you mentioned earlier how members of the you know, of the Zionist government talking just kind of not even coded anymore. 
it i always feel like that's just like they they're ashamed too they 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 know they they've run out but going back to how they're trying to marginalize this man as as is having been mentally ill we're seeing a very similar i guess concurrent insidious thing happening here in the US where they're trying to rebrand mass incarceration through a mental health lens all the activism of the past 10 years much of it has been successful in, in the point of kind of forcing everyone to acknowledge that the police can't be trusted that the police don't tell the truth that the prison system doesn't bring about good impacts that the prison system doesn't bring about good outcomes etc that the carceral system is not a solution there's an agreement on that so there's this kind of rebrand happening led by the democrats it would be led by the right if they could lead it it's being led by the democrats which is to say well how do we make liberals feel comfortable disappearing poor people in the age of gentrification there's there's visible poverty they're not comfortable with it but they also don't want to feel like there's somebody who calls the police so they're rebranding it in the form of lots of legislation that's going to lead to mass conservatorship which is even in some ways worse than the court system because there's even less due process and they just passed a bill in California that says you can you can now be conserved if they decide that you have quote substance use disorder so this allows a cop to 5150 a person off the street because someone said they're strung out and essentially it's just again mass warehousing of 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 poor folks but using a mental health lens and this isn't new i i know we've had other eras especially in the united states and probably throughout where where they used you know victorian era you read all these horror stories of of them using uh claimed mental illness to disappear people or or later on to lobotomize people etc so the with gentrification with the commodification of space with in los angeles for example the olympics coming well how do they how do they attempt to sweep the streets clean this is how and i find it interesting that this has become so reflexive now this is such a plan that then we have this this sacrifice that this man made that's the quick reflex as well as to try to pathologize him and somebody said it i think a lot of people are saying it. it's like switching from mass criminalization to mass pathologizing and pathologizing and criminalization pathologizing and criminalization are the same thing it's the same mechanism and it's so interesting how it's all practiced in the same way just like how in Israel and in New York and Los Angeles the, the police are training each other same tactics same messaging same talking points probably the same comms firms and and well not probably we know the same firms and the kind of global consultant class that that provides the tech etc so that's just been fresh on my mind that that's been the quick reaction when you say there's not been there's not been any coverage the only coverage that has been there has been to say that he was mentally ill the washington post had a headline saying he grew up on a religious compound and my wife made a remark to say well isn't israel a religious compound i thought that was <laughs> funny and true um so anyway i just wanted to make that point because no, that that it all feels very insidious it's a really good point and and one sidebar detail to the self-immolation was the security um officer for the israeli embassy in front of which um the man self-immolated uh ran out with his weapon drawn his pistol drawn and aimed it at the guy as he was engulfed in flames 
other people were running to try to put out the flames. The Israeli guard kept his gun trained on him the whole time, never took it off him. I mean, it's, that's kind of extraordinary. Um, yeah, uh, I want I want to circle back, <laughs> as they say in corporate boardrooms, um, to to talk a little bit about evictions with you, Lex, because I I heard that other lecture you gave. Um, and the numbers are staggering, speaking of disappearing poverty and so forth. Um, yeah, okay, anybody, uh, people have to raise their hands. So um, who's got their hand raised? Um, well, Johan. <laughs> just, a, just a quick comment on what you just said, Lex. I, I think these are, are important observations you're making. And just as a parenthesis, you know, the, the label of, of mental illness is has always, in a sense, been political. And I think that was probably Michel Foucault's most important contribution to, to, to theory that the construction of madness or the criminal or whatever as this counter norm was always a, a part of how, how power has been constituted throughout the modern period. But I also, maybe we shouldn't skip um, this, this topic, but I, I was curious as to the the ceasefire that's apparently being prepared between Israel and Hamas through U.S. Uh, intervention. Uh, have you heard anything about that? About which? I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. Uh, the, the suggested ceasefire is apparently a ceasefire of 40 days coming up. Yeah, I don't. I have no idea what to make of that exactly. And, and it seems like at this point, I mean, Miko Pellet has been really good about the, in quotation marks, cease fire demand. Uh, he says, yeah, okay, 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 but that's no longer, it's, it's end the occupation, end the brutality, the imprisonment and the occupation. Ceasefire, of course, sure, yeah, but that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be the first tier of, 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 uh, of request here, demand, uh, you know, what Corey said that I don't know how we come back from this, uh, and and uh, I don't either. In a sense, I, I I said on press TV, and I'm sure others have said it that in a hundred years, two hundred years, people will look back on this and wonder what the fuck was everybody doing? You know, how is it possible that governments were allowing the slaughter of children, the bombing of hospitals? mosques, nursery schools, it's, you know, and, and it's, it's the first social media genocide, right? We're getting to see things that have never been, uh, that one has never been able to see almost in real time. And, and there was a thing on, on X stroke Twitter the other day of a, of a young Palestinian man and his three-year-old daughter and they were talking about something he did something and then a little later in the day they said oh he and his daughter are now dead they got they were bombed to death a couple hours ago you know the 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 genocide will be televised and um i think for any parent this kind of stuff is just unbearable it, um anyway hiroyuki i think you uh -oh. I'm, um, I really agree with uh, what Lex was saying about the, uh, you know, uh, um, 
the capitalist institutions can reach out to the issue from all kinds of directions. You know, the media would say uh, this or that. Uh, medical institution would say this or that. Um, and um, yeah, it's it, it really echoes uh, how it works. And uh, But at the same time, I guess the tendency has been with us for uh, for a long, long time, I guess, um, how the uh, um, women, for example, um, w were uh, pathologized um, 100 years ago, uh, and that was the norm, and uh, how um, we as uh, population of the uh, capitalist hegemony was put in this uh, uh, social framework. And um, uh, it really, uh, um, nothing really has changed, but uh, I guess it, it's faster, I guess. The, well, it's, you know, it's I, really I, crazy, you know, like uh, we, um, we hear everything uh, from different directions, you know, the social media and, uh, and also, um, in terms of the, um, um, the Palestinian situation, it, I mean, I'm in the U S and there's a sense of fear, uh, still, even with all the, uh, facts coming out, people, you know, you can't really say that you don't know, but right. You know, if you talk to individuals, you can feel that uh, people are afraid, you know, uh, you, people are still thinking that they don't want to be uh, labeled as um, anti-Semitic. And we've been saying this for years and years, anti-Semitism has been used, um, you know, Zionism, it would be laundered into anti-Semitism presented as uh, something else uh, through media, other social institutions, and also we have um, severe demonization of uh, Muslim population, and this is deeply seated. And we can really see it in the fact that the I mean, numbers of the people who are dying as Palestinians, as opposed to Israeli. Uh, death, both are, of course, horrible, but at the same time, you know, the those proponents of the uh, genocide, they, they, they have no problem pointing at hostages or what happened on October 7th, but they don't really seem to care about uh, the people who are being killed every single day well, as look, we speak. They, they, not only do they not care, they, they are aggressively um, targeting Palestinians. They refer to them as animals and insects and vermin. Right. Said, this kind of rhetoric is, to me, unprecedented. Um, Dennis and then Corey? Yeah, I think uh, the last time, uh, you know, when this happened in Europe back in the 1940s, um, there was an outside force that could come into Germany and defeat it and, uh, you know, liberate the, the prison camps. Uh, but now we have nuclear weapons. Uh, uh, Israel has nukes. Um, and so everyone around this issue is just doesn't know how to stop it. Uh, 
nobody knows how to form an alliance and invade Israel and you know, and just uh, you know create a Palestinian state that's secular and uh, just get rid of this uh, like this apartheid state. Um, I so have. I'm going to follow up on that. Yeah, no, and there's a point to be made here, but Corey and then Max. Sort of following up on that point and Hiroyuki's point of fear and then how internationally we we don't, we're not able to really find a way to stop this. I mean, even at a local level, I was just thinking personally how cowardly I feel. I mean, I, I don't have, I'm so domesticated and there's no, you know, we've been de-radicalized. And so I don't even have the local people. I don't have that organization to go out. I don't have the skills or the knowledge or the support, you know, to know how to do, um, you know, direct sort of acts of sabotage anything, um, which I think is necessary to have any movement. I mean, what, what that soldier did yesterday in the U United States, you know, that act of bravery and complete selflessness. I, I, you know, part of me sort of hates myself that I can't do that. And I have too much responsibility to do something like that. It's just so, such a selfless act and it's so courageous. And I think that's missing from our movements because we work within these frameworks of, um, you know, um, set out by the system itself. And then what Lex was saying too, it all comes down to language and branding and rebranding over and over and over again, whether it's the prison industrial complex, whether it's a feminism, whether it's climate, whether it's um, whatever we're talking about, there's this constant framing and rebranding of everything and dehumanization, right? Those things are so critical to keep this, um, you know, destructive system going and keep everyone in line with it. Yeah, I have some thoughts on on um, <clears throat> on uh, Aaron Bushnell's um, suicide, but I want to get to Max. Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, for me, just living here in New York, which obviously is a democratic stronghold, um, by far the most disturbing thing, um, just observing the everyday politics here in, in reaction to um, what's taking place since October 7th, um, has been the response of the liberal class, um, especially, uh, you know, within the context of uh, the Trump era, where, uh, I mean, obviously there have been uh, unprecedented uh, protests in support of the Palestinians and um, calls for a ceasefire. Uh, but when you compare what's taken place in response to just a few years ago when Trump issued the Muslim ban, uh, and then to see the same liberal class uh, response to an actual genocide taking place of Muslims, of Arabs, under a you know, with the green light of a democratic-led administration, uh, it's been extremely disturbing to see the way that uh, liberals have responded where, you know, when, when the uh, 
Russia Ukraine conflict flared up, it was you couldn't escape the um, the 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 uh, omnipresence of uh, Ukraine flags everywhere and this you know so-called yeah. solidarity with Ukraine and with uh, Gaza, it's been in compare it's been it's dwarfed in comparison and it's and also witnessing a lot of high profile you know liberal celebrities the way that they've come out in almost uh, bloodthirsty support of israel and what it's doing some of these you know uh third rate hollywood washups uh on social media i mean certain people like michael rapaport and others it's just been just yeah. just observing the overall uh i mean it i'm not surprised but i am surprised i i can, just can't help but be shocked by some of just the sheer i mean people history is going to look back on this period and and people are, are it's it's just a disgrace what i've what i've seen uh you know liberals who claim to stand with uh with muslims during the trump era and just the sheer cowardice that they've displayed um, and now you have this this movement, you know, in the context of the twenty twenty four election, where people are are where there's you know a lot of dissension about about Biden as a candidate, and you have cities in Michigan with uh, with large Muslim populations, you know, saying obviously they're going refusing to vote for Biden, considering he's greenlighting a genocide, um, but. Uh, you have another wing of people like Michael Moore saying that they're they're still going to vote for 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 Biden because Trump, uh, but they're voting uncommitted. I mean, they're not even willing to take a committed stand against genocide. It's just been utterly shocking to me to witness. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it is. It is. And I, I <clears throat> when I see these celebrities, everybody from I mean, Rappaport is just. Um, a clown show now, but I mean, people like Jerry Seinfeld or Bono, or I mean, there's a just a litany of of um, uh, because you know Hollywood Hollywood has always been pro-Zionist, and I noted last time or somewhere um, that the the opening episodes of the new season network television have started. They were delayed by the strike, and um, uh, the opening episode of FBI, I think I mentioned this, had Somalian terrorists and they were compared to Hamas. They have the same, you know, nihilistic ideology as Hamas. They, boy, they didn't waste any time, um, the producers and the executives in Hollywood, making sure that message was gotten across. Um, but, but, you know, Hollywood has long, long been a, um, a, a recruitment tool for the U.S. military, uh, but I, I'm I'm um, I want to mention a couple of things. One off of what Lex said, but somebody else brought up a minute ago too. You, it's worth noting and remembering that that you know um, the final solution, Hitler's final solution, he stated was based on American eugenics programs. That that. Poor women, especially black and and um, <laughs> women, 
were being sterilized against their will as late as 1974 um, in states like North Carolina, admittedly. But um, that, that this stuff, this disappearing of the poor, warehousing of the poor, suspension of due process for the poor, this has gone on for a long time, uninterrupted. And uh, uh, it, it should surprise nobody that uh, it, 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 these kind of policies get pushed through regardless of, of any kind of opposition. Um, <clears throat> as for Bushnell, I'm just gonna say one thing that will probably be very unpopular in a sense, I, I mean, I, on one level, I admire Bushnell, his selflessness. It was a sacrifice, and he was yelling free Palestine um, as he died um, engulfed in flames. One kind of, I don't know, maybe because I'm so non-suicidal, um, if I had a terminal illness, I would term homicidal long before I turned suicidal. You know, I'd rather see Ben Gavir set on fire than setting myself on fire. I'm just saying. Lex? Yeah, I, I, I want to reflect on what I'm hearing. And then also, just for the record, uh, sterilization of women, forcible sterilization of women went on up until at least 2010 in California prisons. California, not North Carolina. Um, yeah. Well, that, that's a good segue in a way around the dissonance that I feel like people are expressing is is you said a very, you know, you said that the genocide will be televised and the tactics, the comms tactics of. Of, you know, Western governments, U.S., Israel, etc., are the same tactics that they use domestically, and they're also 30, 30 years old now, right? They have not evolved in their strategies. It's the same. It's the same Willie Horton type messaging across all fronts. And it's also just antiquated because this is this is folks who are, you know, who've made careers of this and it's 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 stagnant. And so it's interesting because they they didn't anticipate and they haven't caught up with the fact that that, that there's now there's long been now, you know, going on a decade, two decades now of kind of democratization of information where people can platform themselves through these tools. So they didn't anticipate that. And I feel like some of the dissonance people are talking about where this is very clearly unpopular. I feel like the vast majority of people across the world are vehemently against this. They're disgusted. They're overwhelmed. They're appalled. There will be, there will likely be more uh, Bushnells, which is really disturbing for me to think about. There is mass protests every day in probably every area that we all live in, certainly here where I am. That doesn't mean that protest culture is necessarily effective. I think it's kind of an organically occurring thing. It is what it is. I have mixed feelings about how it gets framed, but it's certainly an expression of the obvious. And so that, that to me begs an interesting question. I certainly want to know like other people's thoughts because you have these clownish celebrities and you have these very obviously bad faith and, and we don't even need to talk about the right, right? The right in America, the platformed right almost feels like an op at this point. They're just utterly ridiculous. So you talk about the mainstream liberal class and they're in such obvious bad faith that everything they say now has been rendered useless if it, all, if it wasn't already by what's happening in Palestine. And so there's mass dissonance right now that's that's forcing up a certain political clarity in a way that is actually good, I think, makes me feel optimistic in some ways. But 
there is that mass dissonance where the establishment is doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on this stagnant, bad messaging around an idea of whatever Israel represents that's long been debunked. So I'm just curious how others are ex experiencing that dissonance uh, because, because this is unpopular. It's not like a bunch of people are for this. People are confused as always, but nobody seems to want this. But we, we have this, this, right, I don't want to say democracy, but self-claimed democracy saying one thing and everybody experiencing another thing. And it's representative of so many things happening at once, but distilled in what's happening in Palestine. It just feels very important to me. Well, I think I think I'm just going to go to Varun, but I just want to add, you know, again, you have you have to remind yourself that that media, legacy media, mainstream media, whatever you want to call it, you know, this is just six corporations. The the contracting of media uh, that took place, I think, in 2003, the final, the final contraction, uh, they stay on message. They have one message, and they don't deviate from it, and they get their, um, the, the message to be delivered is handed to them almost in person from the State Department, White House, and, and Pentagon. And there's no deviation. I mean, we've seen that with, you know, people have made compilation videos of politicians and news readers and everybody saying, saying, build back better. But not just, I mean, the same language, the same sentences. It's, it's almost robotic. It's terrifying. And so most people don't listen to alternative media. Most people are stupid and ill-educated. So they, they don't... Um, I have one of my sons here. Okay, um, uh, and and so it's understandable they they are confused. They don't know what's going on. Um, okay, Baru. Yeah, I I was just thinking about helplessness and uh, the idea that the public, in fact, I mean, this soldier becomes a sort of a symbol or a sign of hurting the self rather than being able to do anything about the establishment. Because, I mean, look at how, I can give you a few examples from India. In the last few years, um, a lot of tribal communities from forests have been cleared out. They've been shot at by the police to clear land for big corporations to dump their coal, which is eventually going to get sold to other countries. So, and of course, I mean, there's been a lot of destruction of what were called... <clears throat> illegal colonies in and around Delhi, which were sort of small suburbs of street performing artists and potters and things like this. The municipal corporation would go over at night and just basically bulldoze the whole place. So the eviction process in that sense, in my mind is, and I think you can tie this to Palestine as well. It is the hardcore fascist neoliberal ideology, which does not want to see the fallout of the system that is functioning. And so you have to erase it. It cannot be in anybody's face. It has to be, you have to remove any trace of that completely. I mean, in, during the Commonwealth Games that were happening in New Delhi, there were 20 feet high screens that were put up in front of slums for where the traffic was going to be moving, right? So the slums had to be hidden away because you are now suddenly going to present an image that there is no poverty in Delhi. 
a lot of people were dislocated. They were sent across the river with absolutely no preparation whatsoever. So those kind of these kind of they become symbols for me in how the system does not want to see its own fallout, and it will also advertise itself as having no fallout. And I think that's very clear to see also in um, in comparison with what they're trying to now so blatantly call for and can continue to do in Palestine is that all these decades of abuse and torture and suppression and oppression and rape and murder is now enough for the world to see. Now we have to erase all traces of it so that there is this kind of rewriting of narrative yeah. so that it falls into the official structure rather than for people to have the unofficial structure of building mythology for themselves. I have two quick points to make. One is, you know, I say most people are, are ill-educated and indoctrinated by media. The, that's not really true. It's the educated white 30%, the gentrifiers, the liberal class, mostly university educated. They are the most indoctrinated and they are also the most visible in media. Um, there are millions of people, tens of millions of people around the world out protesting this genocide. Um, and, and that's a whole question onto itself, why, why that equals no action. Uh, but it also, we should also mention the Arab ruling class, that, that those neighboring countries are in the hands of extraordinarily corrupt governments that are the legacy of colonialism and, and they will always sell out their people and they will certainly always sell out the Palestinians. Um, Johan. I think there are lots, lots of stuff to, to connect with here, but just on the last note here, Shaq uh, Elil, he observed in the 60s that it was just what you just said here, that the educated elite of the universities and, and so on. Are most sensitive to and dependent on propaganda, but I don't, I don't think he suggested a clear mechanism as to why. There's also a lot of things to say about what Arun said a few moments ago. I think there's this clear longing to death and that aggression directed against the self that that kind of permeates the culture today, and you know the self-immolation we're talking about here probably has some sort of a connection to. To every everything from the mental health crisis to the transgender phenomenon in that regard, but but I've uh, had a few reflections on this, this cognitive dissonance you're all talking about here. You know how, how Western media disregards this, this uh, call for a murder of women and children, while well, to be hyperbolic cancels people over using the wrong pronouns. But but you know th this is probably a contrast that that brings out the. the sort of fundamental disconnect between reality and the official and, and institutional discourse, which I think is characteristic of our period to an extent that has probably never been the case, you know, at least not so broadly, so so ubiquitously. I mean, I mean I, you see this in, in situations of, of crisis. Perhaps Dennis can, can make a connection here to, to the rhetoric and the propaganda of the Rwandan genocide. Is, is that maybe a, a reasonable segue? <clears throat> yeah, actually, that's it is a good segue. Dennis, you want to, because the 30th anniversary is coming up, yes? Oh, you, you're muted. 
Yeah, you're muted, Dennis. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, we talked before about covering this topic before uh, the uh, the mainstream media covers it in uh, April this year, which will be the 30th anniversary. And uh, I was thinking about it this week, and it's just it's a big story, and not many people remember it well or know it well. So I was going to ask you if I could just read for a few minutes and sort of a summary of the the history. Yeah, do please. So here's what I prepared. So the official narrative of the Rwandan genocide is a simplistic tale about intergroup hatred that erupted suddenly in April 1994 for reasons put down to ancient ethnic or tribal rivalries. Powerful outside forces are nowhere to be seen. One side was good and one side was evil. The victims prevailed in the end and they established a just society where ethnic identity no longer mattered. One can find hundreds of media and academic articles and graduate theses that deliver this narrative. Unfortunately, it's a deliberate or ignorant version of history that leaves out half the story. The official narrative does not get to the ultimate causes of mass atrocity. How does a society go berserk like this in the space of a few years? How could the same thing happen anywhere to any ethnic group or tribe, yours included? Why is Homo sapiens prone to this phenomenon? People who lived in Rwanda in the late 1980s say they never could have imagined the events of 1994. But in the space of a few years, everything changed. So Rwanda has a contested history about the feudal order that existed before Rwanda became a German colony in the late 19th century. Belgium took over this colony after World War I, then decolonized it in 1959, leaving a democratic republic to replace the feudal Tutsi dynasty. Rwanda was unusual as an African colony because the Germans and Belgians did not rule it directly. They realized that there was a competent ruling class, so they ruled indirectly through the Tutsi ruling class, the sort of cops on the beat, as Richard Nixon liked to describe such arrangements. Uh, the Hutu, uh, the commoners, were the majority. So in the 1950s, when decolonization was happening and the plan was to create a democratic republic, the Tutsis were destined to be out of power if they insisted on retaining their status. Uh, the Tutsis who stayed in the country accepted the new order, and that is an important distinction. The Tutsis who fled, mostly to Uganda, were the ones who wanted to come back someday to their position of power. There was violence and dispossession against Tutsis at this time, real atrocities that should not be minimized. Okay. But this violence occurred because the ruling class was resisting its place in the Republic as a minority that would have no special privileges. Okay. And they were also resisting against unjust acts of retribution and dispossession. Violent upheavals continued to occur in Rwanda and Burundi in the period between 1959 and 1994. But they never caught the world's attention or reached the levels of atrocity that occurred in the spring of 1994. So as you might expect, uh, when there is an attempt to de do decolonization and an anti-feudal revolution at the same time, the transition does not go smoothly. Like France in the period between 1789 and 1814, the transition was chaotic and violent. France didn't really achieve any stability until the Third Republic was founded almost a century after the revolution. Like exiled monarchs in Europe, the Tutsis never gave up their dream of returning from exile and seizing power. A sort of Zionist ideology took hold. 
with a very sophisticated international PR campaign to go with it. Now, before I go on, I want to say this is not genocide denial. Okay? There is no doubt that Hutu extremists carried out an organized campaign that killed hundreds of thousands of people in the spring of 1994. But the extremists were never in power before April 1994. No one was able to stop their killing because the government collapsed when the president was assassinated on April 6, 1994. This collapsing government was also faced with the foreign invasion of the exiled Tutsi army, the RPF. That war started in 1990, but it intensified after the president's plane was shot down, most likely by the RPF. The UN forces did nothing to stop the RPF advance. This foreign army had been allowed to stay in Kigali under the watch of the UN forces. There is, in fact, much evidence showing that the RPF victory was the covert goal of the US all along. This is why the international community did not intervene. They were letting the RPF invasion proceed according to plan. So the debate among historians is how much of the mass killing of civilians was done by Hutu extremists and how much was done by the invading RPF and how much the RPF and Western powers were responsible for creating the crisis through destabilization, invasion, and infiltration of the domestic Tutsi population that made all Tutsis suspect. The official toll of about 800,000 killed in 1994 is about 300,000 higher than the number of Tutsis living in Rwanda in the early 1990s. And they did have accurate census of that population. So this does not include the Rwandans forced to flee the country or killed in the war between 1990 and 1994. Uh, it does not include the 400,000 killed in Eastern Congo in the years immediately after 1994. The war there continues to this day with the total number of Congolese killed estimated to be 6 million. The RPF and the Rwandan government post-1994 have been supplied with modern American and European weapons anti-drone missiles and radar, for example, for the last 30 years to wage war in Eastern Congo and keep the country destabilized so that its resources can be exploited at low cost. So that's, uh, that's the background to it. If anybody wants to comment or ask questions. Well, it's always struck me that, and you know, we're both friends with, with people that, uh, were uh, on legal teams in Arusha uh, later and and in The Hague uh, during the Milosevic trial. And uh, the these two stories mirror each other in many ways because the, the US uh, absolutely manufactured um, the conflict in the Balkans they had a specific goal in mind. This was later replicated in Ukraine with the Maiden coup. Um, this, is, this is what think tanks come up with. This is what US foreign policy does. And the story you got on the Balkans, the story you got on Milosevic, and, and most people, again, you know, your lay news reader if you mention Milosevic to them, they will say, oh, yes, the butcher of the Balkans is horrible. The same with Rwanda. They're going to have the exact inverse story in their head because that's that's what um, 
that's what the U.S. government uh, disseminates to to uh, media sites, and and that's what people consume. Uh, I, you know, I've talked about this so much, the the Milosevic story. I don't want to do it anymore. But that we'll provide links today. There are some really excellent. Um, articles on it, and Dennis himself has written a really excellent book that we'll link to um, on Rwanda. Um, Max. Yeah, uh, great presentation, Dennis. Um, uh, most of uh, my knowledge of that conflict was pulled from uh, the work that uh, the late Edward S. Herman did. Um, and uh, I guess my question was for you, since you seem like you know a lot, was uh, the assassination of the Hutu president. My understanding that that was uh, very likely a, how how many of these uh, conflicts start was actually a false flag operation that was pinned on, you know, the Hutu extremists. Um, I guess I wanted to ask you about that, and and that. Um, uh, that there, as you said, there was very likely U.S. black operations involved and uh, what the extent of the U.S. involvement was because that, like the the war in Yugoslavia, it was, you know, it was something that was a civil war where there was violence and ethnic cleansing happening on all sides. It was then, uh, you know, the villains and the heroes were, were pre-selected in order to benefit uh, U.S. foreign policy. Um, so I just wanted to ask you about that, about the the assassination of uh, the Hutu president um, and whether there was U.S. black ops involved in that, whether you know. Um, I don't know about the black ops, but uh, yeah, the Hutu extremists were originally blamed for it. And uh uh, you can re read academic papers that state that, like it's a matter of fact. But uh, that that case was never solved. Uh, but uh, because the, there was a French pilot and some French citizens on the aircraft that was shot down, um, there was a French uh, judge that, that brought a case uh, in France. Uh, I think there were two cases there. And uh, there's a really good book written on it by Charles Onana, um, uh, written in French, it's never been translated into English, and that was the best investigation of these trials. And uh, in both cases, uh, they got very close. They gathered enough evidence to um, indict uh, Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda, and some of the people uh, who were in his uh, in his RPF at the top. And and uh, when it got close to coming to that conclusion. Uh, there was interference from the, the French government and the case was shut down twice. And uh, there was another judge in Spain who tried to do the same thing. And uh, that was shut down under American pressure. So, so American pressure on two European governments to intervene in the, in the third branch of government of the judiciary. Well, it's just ironic that. because you hear you know, the in in hindsight, you always hear. Um, I, I've seen certain commentators say, "Well, how come you know NATO or the U.S. didn't intervene in the uh, Rwandan conflict like they did in Yugoslavia? Is it because the victims were 
were black and, and not uh, Slavic. Well, it's, well, there may be an element of truth in that, mm -hmm. but the truth is they, they really, they did intervene uh, yeah. by coming up with this propaganda, propaganda campaign, mm -hmm. um, you know, where they, where they gave this totally one-sided narrative uh, and where the, you know, the, the statistics didn't even add up where, you know, I think it was like 800,000 to 1 million Rwandans were, were killed, yeah. but th it couldn't possibly have been a genocide of one side because there was less than a million Tutsis in the country at the yes. time. And I think the, the highest estimate was 600,000. So anyway. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, 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 I'm, I'm, go ahead, Dennis. If you have, I, I just, I will provide links as I say, because, um, because there are some excellent articles about um, the former Yugoslavia. Ed Herman's piece in Monthly Review, four-part piece, is is absolutely brilliant. But there are some longer studies. Uh, George Samueli has one, I believe, uh, and and Diana Johnstone's book, Fools Crusade. There's a number of of very good books. I wrote a number of articles about that, and I was on the um, the artist call for the committee to defend Milosevic, which boy, at the time made one very unpopular, I have to say. Um, the left- To kill a nation by Michael Parenti. Uh, and to kill a nation by my, the great Michael Parenti. Um, the, the, uh, the left was, was pretty uniformly wrong about that. They were pretty much wrong about Rwanda. It, it's the same logic we saw with the, the, the COVID narrative and the pandemic and the sort of vaccine imperialism that um, the World Socialist website came up with and, and Stephen Gowans and people like that. Um, and, you, you know, uh, you, one shakes one head. Christian Parenti had a really good piece about that, who has been a guest on this podcast. Um, but I, I am thinking, I, since we have Lex with us, and he is pretty up to date on certain things about US domestic policy. It's worth, I think, remembering, because I, as I listen to your presentation, Dennis, and I'm thinking about the history of colonialism that still isn't really taught the way it should be, certainly mm -hmm. not here in Europe, in Scandinavia, there isn't nearly um, the awareness there should be. You try to explain the extraordinary racism in the United States to Europeans, and they tend simply not to believe you. Uh, and and uh, it is reflected in the criminal justicism, in, in the carceral system, the inequality in prisons, in, in um, the legal process, anybody who has been through um, the American criminal justice system can can testify to uh, to its biases and prejudices, and uh, but I but I will give it over to Lex a little bit because I also you had talked about the the, the eviction numbers recently uh, in Los Angeles, I believe, L.A. County, and anything to do with that, I would I think it would be great if you talked about a little. Sure. Yeah. Happy to. And again, all of it, all of it's connected to everything that everybody here has said. This is ultimately, 
you know, when we talk about Israel and talk about land use and banishment and eugenics, etc., all of it's very connected. And, and here in the U.S., when we're in the time of, um, you know, full financialization of everything. And so space, you know, space is a widget now. And I mean, it always was, but now it's 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 wrapped up in private equity, just like everything else. And so um, and it's funny, you mentioned the criminal justice system here in the United States. I'm 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 right here in the east side of Los Angeles and there's there's two police helicopters hovering over my house right now as we speak, uh, which is very normal for this neighborhood. And I didn't know, um, and I I was curious with you, being from Los Angeles, this is very normal. I didn't know that it wasn't normal everywhere else. So growing up here, you always have the helicopter over your house. The police helicopter program in Los Angeles has its own funny, weird history, but it's a it's a it's a nonstop factor in people's lives here, and it costs local taxpayers three thousand dollars an hour for the helicopters to be up in the sky doing nothing, um, <laughs> just making noise. Um, but you know, post gentrification, probably all of the cities that we live in, it's 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 horrific, and so going back to how people get marginalized around oh this person is mentally ill or this person is on drugs and deep in the american tradition of of blaming people for their lot and having a kind of fake bootstraps story and also just this real culture of jealousy well why should they have this if i do this why should that person why should that person get to have a truck if I'm over here working hard, et cetera? And so you have a massive homelessness crisis here in, in LA and, and all over the United States. And it's because simply because of the cost of living, you can't afford to live here anymore. You can't afford to live in the Bay Area. You can't afford to live in LA. You can't afford to live in New York. It's just, it's just nearly impossible, even if you're doing well. Um, and there's no stress like financial stress. There simply is no stress like financial stress. And so <clears throat> when you see visible poverty and people struggling on the street or having a breakdown, uh, there's a good, there's a really good author at UC, uh, who also teaches at UCLA, Kelly Lytle Hernandez. She writes a lot about the, the history of the carceral system in California. And she talks, she talked about how the class distinction is when you're wealthy or of means and you have a breakdown, you get to have it in private. If you're impoverished, your breakdown is in public, then it becomes pathologized and it becomes criminalized. We also have all this gentrification where people are moving into neighborhoods that they, I put it this way, <clears throat> a lot of gentrification isn't just financial, a lot of it's cultural, it's the boomerang of white flight. So generations of people moving out of the cities because they were racist or because they wanted to raise their children away from certain groups of people, I guess that's the same thing. The, the 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 kids of those generations have now moved back into the city because they want energetic, vibrant city life. They want civic life. And what they're unconsciously bringing with them is that that suburban exclusivity. Somebody, people moving to the suburbs was to be exclusive. So you're bringing suburban exclusivity into urban space, which in theory is public space to be shared. And so it becomes inherently very violent, very classist, and also very disorienting for those folks who come in and witness things and they don't understand them, or they simply project their own insecurities onto them, and also drives up the cost of living to where you have a massive unhoused population 
And one of the myths uh, that they tried to push, it got debunked here in California. is like, oh, it's people coming from all over just to be homeless, just to enjoy our services. Because liberal California offers so much to these poor people. First of all, obviously, we don't, people don't get offered shit here. But second of all, at least 80% of the people on the street are from here. At least 80% of the people on the street in, in LA and Skid Row are from Los Angeles. And like I said, no stress like financial stress. If someone says, well, they're mentally ill or they're using drugs, that's why they're homeless rather than because that's why they're homeless rather than saying, you know, they're mentally ill or using drugs because they're homeless. You don't have shelter. You don't have a home. Your condition deteriorates. And of course, that, that suburban exclusivity coming into urban space also just creates lots of really bad analysis, lazy analysis, and mainly people calling the police. Police drive up crime. They drive up violence. They escalate situations. We just had a, a, a guy in Skid Row just, just three, four days ago. Uh, I work in Skid Row. Just three, four days ago, a, a young guy was killed by the cops. He had a plastic fork, and they said he was having a mental breakdown. They, they shot him and killed him. And these stories happen constantly, constantly. It's just, it's a hyper-violent thing. And so the, all these so-called progressive politicians, it leads into a much deeper conversation that many of you guys have touched on here about, about liberalism and dissonance, where people do vote for progressive things when given a chance. I argue all the time that demographically, person by person across the United States, people actually are very progressive if given the chance. And that's why our, our so-called democracy is so contained. So people here vote when they can for stuff to try to actually give people housing, give people the support systems they need, create public works. The solution to homelessness is homes. <laughs> it's really simple and it's very viable and it's very feasible. Dignified housing without conditions, without being pathologized, very few people need constant or consistent care. Some do. Most people don't. Most people just need to live with dignity. And some people are going to be in their homes and do what everybody else does in their homes, like get high and have people over or party or maybe make a mess. And sometimes people will do bad things too. Uh, the solution is having a home. But people vote for so-called progressive things, and then we end up with like a progressive class of politician, which are really just liberals or latent liberals, and they bring, they bring that bad analysis with them where that suburban exclusivity, it's gentrifier culture. And I could, I could go on and try and psychoanalyze it, but I don't want to. I mean to say is that this wave of so-called progressive politicians has not held the line on the eviction moratoriums. And so I know that you were interested in that number. And so last month in LA County, there was... 60,000 evictions filed in LA County. The month before, 50,000. To me, I can't even comprehend that number. In Los Angeles County, the most populous county in, in, the, in, the, in the country, yes, but that's over 100,000 evictions in two months that have been filed in LA County. This is, a, this is a human rights crisis, and no one's doing anything about it who, you know, as far as those in power. And remember, we have the Olympics coming here in 2028. We have the World Cup coming in 26, I believe. And that's going to be all the dystopic police state kind of stuff coming with it. Using mental health, by the way, is the wedge. Um, and so it's really craven. And I, I, when I say I'm optimistic, I'm optimistic about where people are. But as far as our, our, our 
political establishment, I do think it's a real indictment on the so-called progressive wing of kind of the liberal parties in the United States, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. I know everybody here agrees. It goes without saying. But but then people were said, well, vote locally, organize locally. Even myself contributed to that, thinking I was in service of something good. And it's been the most craven, cynical failure and moves us farther from that fundamental that I said, which is what we need to advocate for simply is give people housing. That should be the that should be the jump street of all of this. A lot of other things fall in line and it'll be really interesting to see how that tension grows in a place like LA, which I didn't think could get gentrified the way New York and San Francisco could because of the way that we're laid out. But that was just me being naive. And and John, if you were to come back and see what's happened to LA to a city that you grew up in, I live here and I don't recognize it. And it's really it's just really overwhelming. I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, um, I've, I've got a couple of hands up and I want to get to them. Um, w one thing to note, we can talk about another time probably, but we should talk about is uh, the way uh, rehabilitated drug addiction is treated, the way very much the same kind of paternalism is exhibited that people need to be monitored and controlled. Nobody allows addicts or homeless people that desperately poor to uh, make decisions themselves. This sort of custodial class has to make decisions and it is pure white paternalism. Um, and it has a long history. Uh, Johan and then Max. Hmm. Yeah, right. This is just a tangent uh, on what Lex was saying, a question. Uh, maybe you could, could respond to it after I, I stated it. You, you talked previously, Lex, about how prison procedures or strategies sort of reached into politics and governance. Governance becomes increasingly like policing. Do you think this has gotten more predominant the, the last four years, you know, with the, the lockdown narrative being a case in point? Uh, is, is this something uh, something that's becoming more pronounced, you know, the metaphors and, and symbols for, from prison entering into governance in general? Uh, I, I would, for instance, say that in, in a sense, uh, Google's preemptive suppression of, of so-called misinformation would be a, a clear example of the same sort of structure the same project um i'm who were you asking that of lex lex okay before you answer lex let me go to max and then back to you max oh i was just in response to uh what lex was saying that um here in new york um i had just been reading this morning about how uh evictions uh in in the city have hit highs uh that had not been seen in uh, since before the pandemic where the numbers had actually since the moratorium the statewide moratorium was lifted uh last year the numbers of residential evictions have gone back up to what they were in uh early 2020 where it's i believe it's 1500 a month um uh, where, you know, uh, it, it just the social decay that's that's taken place uh, during the pandemic and the the effects of the uh, the lockdowns, which has poured fuel on the fire. But um, yeah, the evictions, the, the situation here is exact is exactly the same as on the, the West Coast. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I I I know one story uh of a woman who teaches at a, a junior college out on the outskirts. It may not even be in LA County, it may be um in in uh San Bernardino County or Riverside County, I forget, but she was a teacher at this school and they knew that there was uh, there were a number of students, a few students that were um, living in their cars. And uh, so they said, well, if you if you can park in the parking lot here, uh, if if you need to sleep in your car, they figured there'd be 10 people that showed up, something like two thirds of the student body showed up in their cars to sleep in the parking lot. Virtually everybody who was a student there showed up. And it just speaks to the kind of disconnect in in the kind of affluent white class and and the that thirty percent demographic we talk about um, that Chomsky talked about fifty years ago. Uh, there is a there is a profound disconnect, and and um, certainly the nightly news tends not to not to cover this this kind of story. Um, okay, uh, Lex, did you want to answer? Sure. Um, I mean, you can't it feels like this begs a longer, deeper conversation, too, about, uh, you know, white progressivism as it's manifesting, uh, where people are voting for signifiers of progressivism while more and more folks are in the streets. But to your question, uh, Johan, I mean, one of the things that was so conspicuously absent from any discourse, certainly here the whole time around COVID, for example, they were willing to, to let people talk about anything but public health infrastructure. And I just found that so interesting where, you know, 30 years into this iteration of like the neoliberal project, where neoliberalism is like, it's beyond an ideology. To me, it's almost like a religion where people will talk to you the same way somebody who's a religious fanatic will talk to you about, that's the only way, this is the only way. If there's not private equity, if there's not profit, et cetera, what are you talking about? It doesn't make sense. That's what drives the world forward. Mm -hmm. And I think that because that's so, that is what runs our country, No, they, they will suppress any discourse around the basics, housing, free housing, public health infrastructure. I, w I, I found it so interesting that they, they would allow for people to argue back and forth in the most ridiculous terms about COVID, but not talk about public health infrastructure, not talk about how when you have clinics in every neighborhood, uh, things get better very quickly. We saw that happen when, when we've seen that happen in, for example, in, in Venezuela, when Chavez was president and, and Cuban doctors came in and there was literally a clinic in every neighborhood. And all of a sudden, all these, all these health outcomes just, just skyrocketed in the positive direction. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, the same thing is happening around housing, the same thing's happening around, around healthcare. And, and then when we see a thing like COVID or we see what's happening in Gaza around land use, that really needs to be named, by the way, that, that Israel is a microcosm for all of these things, especially the kind of hysteria around not having space to live, which is the gentrification model where, mm -hmm. where they commodify housing creates these collisions and COVID was another one where all the bullshit collides and then everything falls apart because everyone's been lying. And same here where they say, well, there's not enough housing. There is enough housing. There's plenty of housing. It, there, there's not enough housing for profit apparently. And those of you who haven't followed it, but it's a really cool story 
the ocean-wide plaza development here in downtown LA. Uh, I believe it's uh, Chinese investors built a massive skyrise development in downtown and then ran out of money, I guess, and abandoned it. And there's no regulations or anything like that. So they got to just abandon it. So you had all these, uh, you had these massive towers sitting there abandoned. And eventually word got out to the local graffiti community that you had this big, massive building that wasn't even being secured. And so it turned into like the biggest public art project ever. And it's amazing if you if you drive if you're driving on the on the 110 or the 101 or the five, you get a really good view of it. And it's it's 50, 60 stories covered now in graffiti murals from top to bottom. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. But it's also, you know, this walking metaphor. And then, of course, you know, the mayor and the city council are really mad about it. And the police chief says we've arrested several of the artists, whether they have or not. And now you have the helicopter circling it every day, shining their lights on it, an empty building. And, and, yeah, and a neighbor. No, it's, that's like a, yeah, that's like a, that's like a little parable, right? Two on the nose, right? It's two on the nose. It's not even cute. It's in a neighborhood full of the highest concentration of homeless folks in the country in that neighborhood where those towers are that are yeah. abandoned. And again, that every every city is like that. So, so again, every city in America is full of empty buildings, empty right. homes because you have absentee landlords that bought those buildings for for tax reasons, for economic reasons, whatever. There's millions of empty homes, millions of empty hotel rooms, millions of spaces for people to live, and none of them are being offered to. Um, to and remember, we have we have eminent domain laws which are supposed to solve that. In yeah. theory, the city is then supposed to be able to claim that land, claim that building, and then do something with it. But instead, what they do is they they wait for the landlord to circle back, and and then they have a conversation and they have a behind the closed kind of back room negotiation to be like, well, we're still speculating on this land because it's going to be valuable in ten years or five years, or you know the Alameda corridor project's about to be put into place. I'm you know talking to LA stuff. And and so then they're allowed to then go get their land back, right? So it's also just the naked corruption. LA is a Western state. People think it's like somehow like New York. And I'm not saying the same problem doesn't exist in New York. It obviously does. But it's a Western state. So it operates much more like Texas or Mississippi or Alabama as far as old boy oligarch style governance that's just nakedly corrupt. But yes, to that point, to your question, it's, it's the... It, Yes, they, 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 they try to suppress so-called misinformation. I think that's nothing new. But what they really suppress, in my opinion, is discourse about the most basic public works that we all deserve, because there is no governance anymore. You have the, the performative policy governance on the front end, and then on the back door where a thing might be implemented. I'm not, I don't know if it ever was, but in, in, in my time now, it's not. What it becomes, it deteriorates into opaque negotiations uh, procurement and contracting with global consultant firms like Accenture, McKinsey, Palantir, and they take on everything. We think of them, oh, that's a surveillance company, or oh, that's a tech, they take on everything. They're the ones getting hired to implement mental health services now, to implement pretrial services. It's it's all privatization. It's global consultant firms. They all have offices in Israel. And that's what our local governments, even after years of advocacy to do a good thing, and then they cave and they sign on to a, a good piece of policy, it gets implemented, or I should say non-implemented through these consultant firms. And I think that's that's the conversation that gets suppressed. 
and and I hope gets more uplifted because it's actually a very practical conversation about governance and what people deserve. Hmm. Dennis? Yeah, one more question for Lex. Uh, you know, the, uh, the American uh, prison system is notorious for being a slave labor system. So do you think this new plan to... Uh, to house the uh, or institutionalize the mentally ill is is a plan really to give them therapy and then put them to work in the labor camp kind of situations or there'll be a, a corporate uh, factory across the street and uh, the people will be forced to to work for very low wages you know outside the cities and outside of natural organic communities but just inside these institutions yeah, I mean, the, the short answer is yes. I don't think it's it's always going to be that linear every time, but it it does eventually get there. And and if you go to the outskirts of, of any big city or really, yeah, if you go to the outskirts of big cities or 100 miles outside of big cities, there's always clusters of mental health facilities, clusters of group homes that young people are warehoused in. It's extremely grim and disturbing. Um, LA's version of that, if you go out to Lancaster, Antelope Valley, there's a lot of group homes, there's a lot of, um, and that's, that's the, the board of supervisor, the board of supervisors in Los Angeles County who represents the Antelope Valley, for example, is pushing hard for this effort to fund this warehousing of mental, you know, so the so-called mentally ill. Um, but yes, I mean, I think what's really upsetting and, and scary about this push to rebrand it through the mental mental health care lens is that as bad as the criminal justice system is and it's horrific there is a there is a due process one does have to go on trial now is it good is it fair no is it corrupt yes but now and what they're it's <laughs> speaking of oxymorons what they're calling it in california they're calling it care court they're calling <laughs> them care court. i know you can't make this up they're calling it care court and they're going to conserve people and then they followed it up with that legislation to make it easier to conserve people. Now they're trying to push a ballot initiative to fund that. So the point being that there's no due process in this in this context. You simply you simply just get to say somebody's crazy and petition through care court, and then they can get taken. Um, and that 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 again goes back to this deeper conversation we should have about bourgeois white progressivism and how it ends how it ends up here. Because what it is, is folks moving to Venice, moving to San Francisco, moving to Los Angeles, these parts of LA, I paid 1.5 million for this beachfront view. I don't want to look at this visible poverty. Disappear it for me, but don't make me feel like I'm a conservative or a reactionary while you do so. It's really that simple in a way. And to me, that's the most important part of this conversation, because I could go on and on about the granular you know, policy implications. And I see that Varun has a hand, but I also... I, I don't know if you want to speak to it, but these same firms that I'm talking about are also working in India with with the Modi government to warehouse Muslim people and detain them with no due process. It's the same firms that are contracting yeah. with Los Angeles County. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've I've actually got friends who work in Accenture and places like this in London. And so I get like the inside scoop about all the projects that are being run in India with government agencies, with private public partnerships and stuff like this. But I actually wanted to give you a direct example of what you just said. A friend of mine was trying to buy for him, his wife and two kids, a very luxurious apartment in one of these high rises in one of the satellite cities of Delhi, of New Delhi. 
and they actually deferred buying something for two years because from one of the rooms in the flats or in the houses that they were looking at, far away, you could see a slum, which is actually housing all the people that are servicing these buildings. Yeah. And these, you know, so they wanted, they actually deferred buying the house because they both felt that that would not be a good thing for the children to see. So, I mean, it goes back to what we were talking in the beginning about this idea of sanitation and cleanliness and this kind of delusion of capitalism that it wants to preserve for itself, you know? And how you were saying that there is this kind of repetitive, if you go individual to individual, they would never have such kind of strong opinion about, about things. They are more compassionate, they're more empathetic, but mm. as a movement of the group, that dynamic completely changes. You know, so yeah, there are strange things is, playing here for sure. This yeah, is go ahead, man. What we a segue to something I wanted to touch on um, before we eventually run out of time here, um, because we've talked about it before on these podcasts. The the trend today to conflate um, communism and fascism, and to see things like I mean, I see all the time people posting on social media about the world. Act economic forum is world communism returning and it's a grave threat and so forth. Now I see even reasonably intelligent people making these conflations all the time. And uh, it, it, you have to kind of, you know, very carefully and slowly explain why, you know, the people that built the death camps are different than the people that liberated the death camps. That these things are different fundamentally, and they're 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 con contra ideological forces, um, and and as Mick Collins used to say, you know, fascism is is anti communism, and anti communism is fascism. But I know Max has written about this a lot at times, and um, I don't know if you see this as much as I do, but uh, it it is. It is very interesting that people, a lot of people sense there is something fundamentally wrong with the state of the world, with the society they live in. They recognize there's inequality. They recognize there's bias, that some people have no opportunities and other people <clears throat> are given um, gifts through nepotism or legacy appointments or whatever it is. And yet, because they're politically immature in some sense, they have no background in any of the political studies, they arrive at these extraordinarily reactionary conclusions. Uh, and I, it's something I find remarkably frustrating and also remarkably difficult to, to solve somehow in conversation. So anyway, if Max, if you have a, a comment on that, I would love to hear it or anybody else. Yeah, no, I have observed the same phenomena. Um, I mean, this has already been going on for for many, many years, but I think it sort of took a different shape. Uh, this, you know, conflation of of uh, fascism and communism, um, in you know, in the reaction to 
the COVID measures um, where, you know, uh, obviously I'm sympathetic um, and understanding of, uh, you know, where people were um, uh, quite skeptical and uh, uh, um, opposed to many of the, the, the lockdown measures and the this, the the violation of uh, civil liberties with the uh, the immunization drive and and so on and so forth, but I think it really speaks to um, the sort of intellectual poverty of today's political climate, where uh, the response of uh, many people, especially uh, you know um, libertarian leaning, I guess you could say, uh, was to uh, yeah, portray a, a lot of the big Western capitalist financial institutions behind these measures, like the World Economic Forum, uh, as being a somehow a uh, international communist uh, uh, conspiracy, or that uh, you know because something like socialism is a, is a, is uh, associated with internationalism as opposed to the uh, nationalism and the nation state that somehow uh, you know the, this global cabal is is uh, is likened to to um, to inter to international socialism I have observed this sort of I mean it's sort of the same rhetoric you see when like I've seen a lot of the same commentators who've, who've had this reaction, uh, you know, try and say that, you know, the Nazis were socialists and this same sort of historical trope. And, you know, I, a lot of people who I many people I was very surprised by who I, who I otherwise respect. I'm not going to call them out by name, but, you know, we're sharing uh, like in response to the covid measures, we're sharing quotes from people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who, of course, right. <laughs> author of the Gulag Archipelago, you know, was a notorious anti-Semite. He was uh, a sympathizer of the the Vlasovite uh, uh, Russian Liberation Army, which collaborated with the Nazis in World War II and defected from the Red Army, uh, you know, and also a, another uh, former colleague of mine now, I guess, who, uh, you know, he, he was a prolific writer, uh, you know, put out piece after piece criticizing, and rightly so, uh, you know, the, the COVID measures, which many people felt were draconian, myself included. Um, I, of course, have any questions about the, the, the origins of it, how, how the statistics about it, everything. But uh, his response was to just endlessly talk about how these measures were uh, uh, totalitarian, and began adopting the same language, the same exact language that's used to demonize uh, countries in the global South that resist Western imperialism, and that is used as a pretext to put sanctions on them, take military action against them, and so on and so forth. So I just have observed, yeah, in response to, to COVID, especially people uh, adopting uh, the lexicon of uh, of uh, of imperialism that, th that they should know better, uh, conflating, you know, miscasting uh, 
these measures that they disagree with by these big, uh, by big uh, uh, organizational bodies like the UN and the World Economic Forum, and somehow portraying them as uh, associating them with uh, with with socialism, yeah. uh, and well, it's been, it it really sure. speaks to the intellectual poverty of of our time, and that I think that's a separate phenomenon from the you know the other conflation of fascism and communism which is um you know horseshoe theory and uh what yeah. we see these european union resolutions uh you know con conflating uh nazi germany with the soviet union um i think this is a di more distinct phenomena that's arisen since covid and it's really perpetuated by you know libertarian mises institute adjacent type people yeah, it, it, those names crop up, uh, the LaRoucheites too. Um, but totalitarian is very interesting. That word, uh, which actually preceded Hannah Arendt, but she popularized it. Um, Enzo Traverso had a, a comment where he said, it, that word has now simply come to mean enemy of the West. And, and that's the best short definition of it. It's, it's a red flag word as, as soon as you hear it. Uh, and and it's, it, anytime people lead with that, uh, there, there will be this conflation uh, that follows in its trail at some point. Um, the, the, it's, it's worth noting, and, and this is something that... <clears throat> I know actually, Max, you have written about this. You had a really good piece on it. The, the, the history of Western anti-communism is extraordinary. And uh, I said in my recent the blog post I published today, I said the, U, the US since 1970, certainly since um, the end of World War II in particular, have spent most of their energy uh, demonizing communism, attacking communist socialist states, uh, employing covert ops, disrupting, interfering with the process, killing, assassinating um, socialists. And, and they have been extraordinarily effective. The government has, the US government has been very, very effective in this propaganda. And as we said, I think on one of the previous podcasts, um, if communism and socialism, is, if these things are so terrible, uh, the United States wouldn't need to to spend all this money to demonize them. You can just let them go, you know, self-destruct because they're a terrible idea. But in fact, um, communism still is the great uh, boogeyman for Western capital. And and whenever it crops up, you can you can rest assured there will be. Um, some kind of interference and and it, it that that the intellectual poverty you speak of can begin with that most people have first of all no idea who Marx is but that that the concept of imperialism has been buried along with many other things and uh, when when the Ukraine conflict came broke out uh, I was amazed because people said, you know, Russian imperialists, they're expansionists. And I said, they're really not, actually. That would be the United States. This country, Ukraine, is next door to Russia. It's like thousands of miles away from the United States. 
But of course, it's not thousands of miles away from one of the 900 military bases the U.S. has outside its borders. Um, Russia has, I think, five military bases outside its borders. The U.S. has 900 plus. So, um, and yet, this kind of history, these kind of facts, um, are, are have no traction with many people. Well, also those. Sorry to interrupt you, but those five, um, I believe, mo all except for the one in Syria, are in former Soviet satellite countries. Yeah. Country. So basically, yeah. by saying if someone is saying that Russia is imperialist for having those bases, apart from the one in Syria, that means that they're saying that the Soviet Union was imperialist, which says a lot about their their left wing credentials. Um, yeah, it's it's extraordinary. Okay, um, who uh, has anything else? Corey, you've been so quiet. I'm just thinking. So I'm. I guess lately my thoughts are how to shift out of this paradigm of you know this neoliberalism, liberalism, which I consider both um, pathologies. How to how to leave this paradigm behind? How to sort of you know move forward from where we are? This feeling of paralysis, and. Um, um, yeah, like I've thought about even having, trying to start, I want to have these conversations in real life. I mean, I don't know how we can advance forward without history and without understanding history and imperialism and talking about these things. And how do we even move out of the suicidal system that we find ourselves in if we're not willing to discuss um, communism, socialism, or other options, which people still around the world are dying for. Um, and then, you know, basically we're mocking them by pretending or not even pretending, but, you know, by conflating um, communism with um, World Economic Forum and ruling classes. And so I thought about having maybe advertising somewhere for a book club and start there to have people come to my, you know, meet up and, and discuss books. And I mean, I all those kind of ideas are great. And, but I mean, then I think, first of all, no one will come. Maybe one person will come or I envision a room and it will be, you know, myself and maybe one person I know and then like five cops, <laughs> <laughs> undercover cops or something. Well, that's probably true. But no, I mean, Johan and I have talked a lot for the last couple of years, as has Hiroyuki and, and, and Varun about a people's university in and this is my main goal right now, and and I'm working on it slowly, uh, because I think I think that's all you can do. Power is not concentrated, and and as I always say, you know, you can't storm the Windsor Palace anymore because there is no Windsor Palace, um, and and there is this global network. I mean, I should mention that we're talking about the American police. Um, and their brutality, and no different than most, although not all, European police, they're all trained by Israeli military. Um, uh, and, and so you have a U.S. police system that looks on poor neighborhoods in terms of counterinsurgency. That's, that's what they're trained to do. Uh, and there's a whole history. Somebody wrote a really good article on, on the, the the rise of SWAT uh, in in um, in U.S. police departments. Okay, I think all the kids are home now. Um, 
and and uh, it, it it is extraordinary because this is this is U.S. police pay a lot of money to go, and uh, they travel to Israel and and attend seminars conducted by the the people that are slaughtering children in Gaza. It's it's remarkable. All right, let's kind of get final-ish thoughts because um, it's going to get very noisy in this house soon. Uh, Johan? I'll just try to make a few observations from, from what you've said here. So we, we've talked a lot about this divergence between narrative and reality and step from several perspectives and then in several ways. And I think this disconnect is, is crucial to all the social and, and political processes and, and their, their problems that are, are all around us today. Uh, I mean, even though this has gotten catalyzed recently, though, not least through through COVID and in relation to to what I would call the digital disconnect, I think the roots are much deeper and older. And in connection to what Corey said uh, a few minutes ago, maybe half an hour ago, but courage, I think the disconnect has a lot to do with how extensive our domestication has become, you know, how team we are, how, how catastrophic our loss of independence has become. And, and we're, we're sort of increasingly dependent upon an external authority for all of our thoughts and actions, which connects very well with, with what Max refers to as intellectual poverty. And, and this, this dependence in our society sort of manifests as the, the predominance of a narrative that's separate, separated from reality. I'd maybe used to call it like the harnessing of, of the symbolic order through propaganda. And, and my point is that when power is almost exclusively produced and reproduced through this sort of disconnected narrative, it's going to increasingly diverge from reality if and when this divergence will benefit the power structure. Um, yeah, do, do with, with that what you will, you know. Um, I Yeah, I think those are really... As you kind of brilliant observations. Um, there's, you know, cutting across all of this, all the observations we have all made here uh, is the fact that uh, the United States is, and I keep referring to the US because it is, it is the primary force of disruption in the world. Uh, this is a not a happy society. Uh, the statistics for mental illness, for clinical depression, for the use of antidepressants, prescription of antidepressants, uh, self-harm, spousal abuse, uh, down the line, public intoxication, everything, are, you know, continue to grow, including suicide. And, and uh, there is a uh, an infrastructure that is falling apart. You have this homeless crisis, un unbelievable numbers involved that are that are buried in the media. Uh, so it, it it bears mentioning that that there is this election coming up that is a kind of circus to which only thirty percent of the population votes anyway. Um, I can't believe anybody takes it. You have Donald Trump and a senile old man. It's you can't make this up. It's it's you know, um, and Trump is perilously close to senility actually. Uh, so you know you and and this week, as I said, Andrew Oglis, who's a who's a congressman, uh, said 
Palestinians, they should just kill all the Palestinians. Uh, the fealty shown to Israel by the political class in the U.S. is shocking. But then half or 70% of Biden's cabinet is made up of uh, people with dual citizenship between U.S. and Israel. So Zionism's, you know, I mean, Israel's not a real country. It's a, it's a tricked out garrison state uh, with religious trappings and uh, uh, it, it serves its purpose as sort of attack dog for, uh, for the U.S. in the region. That's always what it's been. And if people understood the real history, and again, I hope people look at the links that we will provide for this podcast. Uh, if you look at the history that precedes 1948, uh, Zionist gangs were slaughtering uh, Arabs in that region 20 years before 1948. Uh, the the Stern gang and Ergun all they preceded 1948, uh, and and there are letters by British politicians and military people to each other saying, "What are we going to do with these crazy motherfuckers? They're shooting at us. They're killing us. <clears throat> In addition to killing Arabs." Anyway, <clears throat> the point being that that the United States and everybody knows this, but, you know, is a country built on slavery, genocide of indigenous people, 12 presidents owned and worked slaves. Everybody knows this whole story. Uh, it is still the people in jail are disproportionately black, Hispanic, and poor. No rich people go to prison. And if rich people are convicted, this has always amazed me, they are sent to country club prisons. They don't go to the joint. They go to country club prisons and, and, you know, hang out for six months and then they're released back into society. They don't do 30 years in solitary um, like people are doing for possession of marijuana sometimes or for being a Black Panther. Or, and, and I know Lex knows far more statistics on this than I do. The point is it's a miserable, unhappy place and it's falling apart. And it doesn't wield the power that it once did. It's also universally hated by the rest of the world, certainly by the global south. And uh, it is unsustainable. Israel as a, as a nation is unsustainable. All right, that's my last thought. Hiroyuki, and then anybody else with final thoughts, please give them. Well, <clears throat> I was going to just add to the, uh, once again, uh, about the... Uh, um, Demonization of communism, and um, uh, I think um, I think I, I already said it before, but it's I, I think it's a reflection of the fact that the uh, uh, um, politics as a social institution has been corporatized. The corporate entities are uh, behind uh, any political forces and uh, uh, it's being reflected in the uh, uh, policies uh, pushed by socialist uh, organizations during COVID, of, um, for example. And um, so, you know, it, it makes sense that the uh, we have um, momentum to uh, uh, normalize the fact that the uh, uh, some people think that uh, fascism and communism are the same thing. It's, it's uh, uh, you know, that's 
in reality, in policies, uh, you know, people can sort of uh, connect dots in immature, you know, uh, politically immature ways, and they can um, make sense out of, uh, you know, just like uh, Max was talking about, it's really prevalent to um, equate what's going on internationally as communist movement. And um, in, uh, in reality, it's a reflection of the fact that the, uh, the whole thing is really, really corporatized. All institutions are led by uh, corporate entities. When we talk about um, anything uh, in any field, we have uh, difficulty talking about things uh, because you might lose your job you might lose your positions and uh and it, it really comes down to the fact that um we don't have social relations that are based on our interests and then we can't even talk about it so i think it's you know uh uh on the uh, anniversary of 100th uh podcast i really thank john for uh providing us for this opportunity to talk about things uh, from different perspective um, uh, without worrying about uh, getting fired. <laughs> we might get fired, but <laughs> um, well, you know, we, we have this place and uh, uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, uh, I hope we can keep going. Um, Matt, thank you. Here, uh, Max? Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, in response to, well, just to continue what I was uh, saying earlier, um, I really think that ultimately the blame for um, the phenomena that I was describing with uh, the reaction of so many to uh, the the COVID measures and, and uh, 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 the 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 response of 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 people to conflate uh, what's taking what took place uh, with the lockdowns and the immunization drive and uh, things like uh, the climate the climate uh, crisis uh, I really think that what's enabled the right to do that and get away with it has been the failure of the left because it's very hard to. Uh, argue that the World Economic Forum is not, uh, you know, uh, uh, an international uh, communist conspiracy when you have large swaths of the pseudo left uh, supporting things like green imperialism or supporting things like shifting of the blame for the climate crisis onto everyday working people. Uh, uh, and and arguing uh, supporting things like uh, you know this Malthusian idea about depopulation and lowering the human population to combat climate change it really ultimately has to do with the way that the left has failed and it's just providing ammunition for the right to be able to uh, equate things like you know the World Economic Forum and um, you know. Uh, uh, the the UN Agenda 21 and whatever you want to mention uh, 
it really speaks to the failure of the left on these issues like climate change. And I think that's why we're continuing to see these sort of uh, spontaneous, organic uh, populist uprisings like the yellow vests or you know, uh, the, the farmer strikes in Europe and things like that, where they don't really have uh, any political leadership. It's just sort of working people protesting these things uh, by themselves without any real uh, direct political affiliation. They're not led by, I mean, it's because the left has failed. They're not, they're yeah, not uh, taking the reins. But absolutely so. And I'm glad you mentioned the farmer protest because this is a very good example. I mean, those protests which began really in, in the Netherlands, but France had the LFS protest, which was made up of, of primarily agricultural workers from rural areas because the hospitals had closed and they lacked access to health care. Uh, but the the farmer protests spread to Germany and Greece and Spain and Wales and Scotland and now they're actually beginning in Norway even uh, because the policies of these governments made it impossible for farmers to live. Their profit margin was already very small and the price of a tractor, as I said somewhere, has tripled in the last five years in Norway. Uh, farmers can't live, they can't, they can't survive. Uh, the cost of fertilizer has gone up, the cost of feed has gone up, everything has gone up and they're, they're not able to survive. And that of course was the idea of these, uh, these government policies coupled to the massive investment in artificial meat, uh, lab grown meat, stem cell meat, 3D printed meat, all of which, by the way, tastes like shit. Um, and nobody wants to eat it. Nobody's going to eat it. They're not eating cricket burgers anytime soon, as hard as they keep trying. But a lot of money, trillions of dollars were invested in artificial meats. Um, and nobody wants it. And, and the farmers were extraordinarily angry. They are angry because they have nothing to lose. I mean, it's a really a revolutionary kind of state of mind. They have nothing to lose. They're failing. Their farms are going under. Um, and, and there was a mild protest a couple of years ago in Norway where farmers left a pair of boots out on their driveway up to their house. And it, it was empty boots, empty farms. Uh, and every farm you passed, and Norway is essentially nothing but farms, uh, there were a pair of boots out there. Everybody was in agreement, but the political consciousness, as Max said, was, you know, was missing. Uh, these are people that, you know, are staunchly anti-communist and, and uh, their knowledge of this stuff, they don't know how to organize. They, there's no history of this. Uh, in a lot of these places. France knows how to strike, but but maybe they've forgotten a lot of it. I don't know. But the point being that that you see with the Palestinian overwhelming pro-Palestinian protests, you see the farmer pro, I mean, there's millions and millions and millions of people out there who fundamentally understand the corruption and dishonesty of, of the ruling state and they're just not sure what to do about it. But this social unrest will not go away. They, I don't think these people can be placated in general. By the way, there are people in prison now in France serving 
you know, six month sentences for waving a Palestinian flag. And uh, all you saw at the outbreak of the Ukraine conflict was was Ukrainian flags. I play on chess online while well, I play chess everywhere. But and and you were offered uh, with your little avatar, you could have a Ukrainian flag if you wanted. I said, no, thank you. Um, and I asked him, I wrote to and I said, do I get the option of a Palestinian flag? No. That's indoctrination. Where does that come from, right? That's just indoctrination. It's very, very strange when you think about it because you're seeing thousands of dead children, the body of dead toddlers and infants. Infants are dying of malnutrition as we hold this podcast. Uh, and, and yet somebody went to jail for having a Palestinian flag. All right, final, final thoughts. It's been great to have all of you on, really great. And I want to thank everybody. Um, I, yeah, I, I want to mention one thing, but I, I uh, so I've been uh, um, doing a uh, rally for Palestine uh, weekends, you know, locally, and uh, I would go out. And uh, so uh, I actually see, you know, the nastiness of the uh, Zionists actually being horrendous you know they would give you fingers they would say things like you know jew haters whatever uh even though many of us are jews you know because they don't want that on themselves you know so many of the people in the u.s speaking up are actually jews you know and uh, but but what i noticed is that um so I, there are people who would uh give thumbs up you know, uh, when they cross um, um, in front of us in cars. And uh, then sometimes, you know, the oh, yeah, that's nice. Then, the, you know, the, the car goes by and you see a Ukrainian flag sticker on the back of the car. Yeah, this is a great point. Yeah. You know, yeah. so there is definitely a lack of understanding of the imperial framework and what's being doing. And that really comes with the... Uh, conflation of the um, uh, socialism and capitalism and you know so it's really deep the anti-russian thing is amazing yeah the, the, yeah. the, the, the you know i watched john stewart uh do this angry critique of tucker carlson's interview with putin and i thought you know um and and making fun of oh it's a clean subway uh, well you know we have dirty subways but that's the price of freedom he actually said that <laughs> this is a guy who's worth 120 million dollars conservative estimate um you know it, the the anti-putin anti-russia thing goes back of course to 1917 it really is probably precedes that even but um, those Romanov parties were so fun, you know, gosh. Um, and and it's been very effective. It's all I can say is that it really has been effective. It's hard to talk to people about that. Harder to talk to people about that than it is Gaza, actually. Um, but okay, thank you all. Um, and my final thought is Mossad, the official Mossad Twitter account, after Aaron Bushnell burned himself alive in protest, issued a statement. Ha ha, 
our enemies are killing themselves. Ha ha. That's wow. thought. Yeah. Okay, Hiroyuki, Dennis, the legend, Corey Morningstar, mm -hmm. Max, number one son, Lex, and Varun. Thank you all hugely. You are all invited back every time. We're going to try to do these on Tuesdays. Um, you know, I will let you know anytime you can make it, please do. Max, final thought? You have your hand up there, I see. Oh, I was just giving a thumbs up. Thank you for having me. <laughs> great to, great okay. To yeah. Same no, here. I want to just say a big thank you. It was great to be part of the 100th episode. Yeah, it's been great. And um, like I say, you are all uh, you are all invited back. And this should be up um, pretty soon by tomorrow, certainly. All right, guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Take care. Yeah.